Good morning. Always great to gather here with brothers and sisters in Christ, everybody else who chooses to visit with us as well. Especially want to welcome our visitors. So, I was working this week trying to, you know, come up with the topic on this, and that may sound like kind of last minute to some people, but actually it's just a matter of kind of choosing from some topics that I had in mind for a while. And I came up with a particular topic, and here's why. And I'll go ahead and tell everybody and acknowledge up front this is a sensitive topic, and I know that. Uh, The reason why is because this week, in an online discussion group that I participate in, uh, this particular topic actually came up, and it became so contentious that the moderators ended up having to shut down the discussion uh, because it is, in fact, a sensitive topic. But I do think it's important that we address it, uh, because it is going to come up, and we need to be prepared to how to deal with it, and be honest and open about what the Bible does and does not say about the topic. So, with all of that background and explanation, I want to talk today about slavery, and what the Bible really says about this. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, last time I talked, we talked about some of the general values that are established in the Bible. And we look specifically at the Genesis account uh, as to how that lays some foundational values that underlie all of the rest of what Scripture teaches in more detail. For example, Genesis chapter 1 talks about how God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. All human beings are created in God's image. We are divine creations with living souls, eternal souls, blessed by God. And every human being is valuable on that basis. And then we're told over and over and over again throughout the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a recurring theme. It pops up in the Old Testament, and then it's repeated multiple times in application throughout the New Testament explicitly. So you would think that with these two general principles alone, you could figure out that the buying and selling and treating human beings as property without any rights of their own is an evil that the Bible is not going to accept. So it seems like it should be clear from these general principles, and yet we have people that still try to say that the Bible condones slavery. Why do they do that? Where does this come from? Well... Unfortunately, in the past, there have been some claiming to be Christians that have tried to use passages from the Bible to justify slavery. And I'm going to go at length as to how, why that is a misuse of Scripture. But we need to understand that that has been history. There have been people claiming to be Christians. And if you want to give it a biblical application interpretation, false teachers going out from among us, even... Uh, that have used passages in the Bible to try to justify slavery. And it's usually a a really twisting of it. For example, one real extreme uh, example of this is some have actually said that the curse on Ham in Genesis chapter 9 after the Noah's flood uh, is somehow a basis for race-based slavery. That this, you know, specified certain races which were okay, you know, and therefore that was all right. But that's the length that people will go to in misapplying these scriptures. Atheists also will use this as a basis for attacking scripture and Christianity specifically. 
They're going to try to pick out passages, and this, again, came up with this discussion online this week that I dealt with, that, you know, they'll pick certain passages and verses out of context, out of the Bible, and try to say, oh, look, this says slavery is okay. You know, and that's what they're going to try to do as a way of attacking, discrediting the Bible and discrediting Christianity. But both of these instances, whether you're talking about historically people trying to claiming to be Christians, we think it, or atheists, either way, are taking these passages out of context, uh, and they are generally ignoring most of the New Testament passages about slavery, especially. But I think if we look at it, we're going to kind of break down both the Old Testament passages on it and the New Testament passages. And when you look at the Scripture as a whole, it's pretty clear: slavery is not okay. God does not condone slavery. Slavery is wrong. Slavery is evil. Treating human beings as property without rights is not acceptable. So where does this confusion come from? Well, part of it is inherent in the scripture's languages itself and our attempts to translate them into modern language. All right? As everybody hopefully knows, and if you don't, here's some background on it. So we're going to get into the, the background of the passages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And Hebrew, especially biblical Hebrew, um, is, is very basic language. It's, it doesn't have a large vocabulary. And so a lot of the words that were used in Hebrew had multiple uses, and you had to look at the context around it to determine what the word, that specific word meant in that particular context. So, for example, the word that is often translated as slave or servant, and it depends on the context, it depends on the translation, there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but when we look at our English Bibles and we see the word slave or servant from the Old Testament, it's usually the Hebrew word either ebed for the male or ama for the female. And there's also a Hebrew word makar, which means sold, is sometimes translated as sold when they're talking about slaves. But that word, for example, makar, isn't just referring to slaves. It also can refer to a person hiring themselves out. It's any transfer of rights. It's any kind of uh, changing. Now, sometimes it is used in respect to specifically property, but it's used in different contexts. And so you have to look at the specific context to see what the word actually means. And specifically, these words, ebed and alma, that are translated as either slave or servant, depending upon the context and the translation, can refer to a wide variety of different situations. The same words are used to refer to the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. And we would commonly understand that under those circumstances, they were not voluntarily there. They were being held there against their will and forced to work against their will. That was clearly involuntary servitude. It's also used for prisoners or conquest of war, people that are taken captive uh, and then forced into that type of position. But it's also used to refer to criminals who are put into servitude to work off their criminal debt. Somebody who has stolen something or destroyed property or something or done something to somebody else would be put into servitude as a way of repaying that restitution and that debt. But the same term is still used for them in that context. So you have to look at that context and see what it involves. And of course, they didn't have prisons back then, so it was not like they could just stick people and lock them away for a period of time either. They had to try to figure out a way to make that work. But the same terms, ebed and amah, in the Hebrew, 
are also used for voluntary servants, voluntary servitude. So if you had somebody who, for example, had a large debt that they needed to work off somehow, they would go into voluntary servitude as an ebed or alma to work off that debt. And it was something they agreed to with the, de- the person that they owed the money to. The same word is also used for people that are household servants. And household servants in this context is like people who are literally members of the family. They're not blood-related, but they have worked within and served the family for so long that they are recognized as members of the family. And so it's, again, that same term. It's very important, then, to look at the context of when this word is used to figure out what it's referring to and not to apply our modern, current, American, whatever basis of interpretation onto the passage. Now, it is distinguished from, in the Hebrew, the word wakir, which specifically refers to a hired wage worker. So you have two different situations. You have the ebed or ama, who is somebody who basically is kept in you know, room and board, basically, with the person that they're working for, and they don't receive any kind of compensation for that work. But then you also have the wakir, which is the hired wage worker, which is the person who says, yes, I'm doing work for you, and I'm getting money in return for that, or goods, or whatever it is that they return, get in return for it. So, part of this is the language of the Hebrew, and we need to understand what we're dealing with, and not just take for granted the English translation that we happen to be using on that passage to look at the context. Now, in the New Testament, it's a little different. In the New Testament, it was written in Greek, and the word for slave that's often translated as slave in the New Testament, in English at least, is doulos. And that's used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament as well, and we'll get into that here in some more, more specifics as well. It's a little different, though, because when you get to what that kind of relationship meant in the Old Testament context versus in the New Testament Uh, It's a little different. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So, getting into some of the limitations, and I'm sorry this is so small, I was trying to pack a lot in there, but the scripture puts a lot of limitations and specific uh, specific requirements on the treatments of people that are in these relationships, whether you characterize it as a slave or a servant or whatever you translate it as. For example, looking at Mosaic law in particular, um, there's a lot of requirements. If somebody is in this condition of servitude under Mosaic law, then they were required to be freed in the seventh year. They could not be kept or forced to be in this condition more than seven years. And that's addressed in both Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 15, talking about that limitation. And one thing, by the way, in terms of the over-context In the old law, under the old Hebrew culture, there was this concept of the year of Jubilee. So every 50 years, after every seven, there's cycles of seven years. There was a seventh Sabbath year every seven years, like we talk about here. And then there was the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, all debts were to be repaid. Or forgiven, not repaid, but forgiven. And so at the very minimum, every 50 years, this stuff was going to end. Every, you know, I guess if you became an indentured servant, in the year right after the Sabbath year, then the very next year you'd you'd be done. But the law put a limitation specifically on this and said these are not to be kept beyond this time frame. Also, and the law is pretty clear on this, there was a death penalty for kidnapping and selling slaves. 
I don't see how you can say, well, slavery was obviously okay when the scripture says it's punishable by death to do it, but there it is. So Exodus chapter 21, and again Deuteronomy 24, says anybody who kidnaps somebody or, and or sells them as a slave forcibly is to be punished, and specifically the punishment for kidnapping is death. So that's not allowed. It's not endorsed or condoned by the scripture in any way. There's a punishment assigned also for the master, and again I'm using that term because that's how it's translated, uh, if they kill the slave, if they beat and kill the slave, they are to be punished and put to death. The slave is protected, slave again, is protected in that same way. Uh, Exodus chapter 21 talks about that too. If they are beaten and permanently disfigured, they are to be freed as compensation. So there's that protection that's also built into the system there. Debtor servitude, when you're dealing with, again, we talked about the bondsman that voluntarily goes into servitude to pay off a debt, has to be voluntary. And while that debtor servant is living in the household and working for that person, they have to be treated as a hired servant with the same level of respect and protections. And not even that, but as a guest. We've maybe heard about this before. Under old cultures, the standard of hospitality was very high. That was an important value in their cultures. So if you've got a law that says, hey, this person, although they're a servant in your household, is supposed to be treating with the high levels of standards that you would treat a guest, then it's clearly something that says this person is not to be disregarded or belittled or taken advantage of in any way. Not only that, but when they did finish their servitude, after the seven years or however long that might be, then when they were set released from that, they were to be given livestock, and they were to be given grains and parts of the harvest and things from the winery. They were supposed to be given a share, basically, of the things which they had helped to build. And the scripture specifically explains the basis for this. God reminds the Hebrews, he said, look, Israelites, y'all were slaves in Egypt, but through God's intervention, you were released and you were freed. And remember what happened when the Hebrews were freed? When they left Egypt, the Egyptians were so overwhelmed and so humbled by God's plagues and treatment that he had sent upon the Egyptians to punish them for that, that they gave all kinds of gifts to the Israelites as they were leaving. And God says, in that same fashion, you Israelites, remember your own former servitude and remember what you benefited from that when God set you free and you treat the others the same way when you release them. Um, now, the person who was in that servitude under the old law could choose to remain in it past that seventh year, past the repayment of their debt. They could say, hey, I actually like working for this person. This person is a good caretaker. They're a good provider for family and for me uh, while I've been here. I want to stay in this household. And if they choose to do that, there is a process where they could go and become a permanent member of the, the uh, family of the household. Deuteronomy 15 lays out the whole process. It talks about taking them to the elders of the town, making it a, a public acknowledgement, and they would pierce their ear as a sign of that decision, of that agreement. And we even have a, a song that we sometimes sing about it. Pierce my ear, O Lord, this day. That's talking about that passage. It relates also to the voluntary decision to be of service in that household. Runaways could not be returned to the person that they were supposed to be serving. That was prohibited in Deuteronomy chapter 3. 
And then in the New Testament, it goes on and even a little bit farther and tells us even more restrictions. Um, so, but first, before I get into that, in the Old Testament, we need to understand that God set up a very specific framework, and he did not allow slavery as we understand that term today. He said there may be occasions of voluntary servitude, paying off debts, making restitutions for crimes, whatever the circumstance may be. But even in those circumstances, those people need to be treated with respect as human beings and even as members of the household or guests because that's the respect that they deserve as human beings. Now, this wasn't the way in all of the old world. There were other people besides the Israelites that had slaves in the way that we think of it in the modern terms. Uh, And they unfortunately had to deal with those people. But this is what God says about how slavery, or what we call slavery, uh, was not allowed and was limited within the old law of the Israelites. So then you get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you're dealing with the Roman world. The Romans are the authorities. And under Roman law, that also is much more like what we think about in modern terms of slavery. Uh, Roman law treated slaves as property. And they had no rights. And they could be done with whatever people wanted to do with them. But, nevertheless, the New Testament comes in and says, you Christians are not going to treat slaves the way that the rest of the world is treating them. You're going to treat them differently. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, famous passage, in Christ there is neither male or female, (laughs) Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. We're all familiar with that passage. This is a revolutionary thought in that context. The idea that slaves were on equal footing with freed people, even if the law called them a slave, as far as Christians were concerned, as far as the church was concerned, as far as God was concerned, they are still children of God just on the same equal footing as anybody else. And this would have been crazy to the culture back then. Like, what, what do you mean you're associating free people and slave people? They're not the same people. Well, they are as far as God's concerned, and they emphasize that in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6 talks to masters and says, hey, you need to treat your slaves with respect. It doesn't matter that the law says they're your property and you can do with them whatever you want. You treat them with the same respect that you would anybody else because, remember, God is above you in turn. And just as you are a servant of God, these people are servants and you need to respect them in that respect. They are also called to fairly provide for their slaves. Colossians chapter 4 He says, you masters, if you've got somebody working for you and the law calls them a slave, you need to be taking care of them. You need to provide for them fairly and properly. You can't abuse them or neglect them. That's, you know, I don't care what the law says. (laughs) That's not what Christians do. That's not what Christians do. And so the New Testament says, you know, do that. And, And if we need any further emphasis on this, again, slavery... And slave trade is listed over and over again as being an evil thing. In the Old Testament, it's punishable by death. In the New Testament, slave trading is listed among lists of unrighteous and ungodly acts. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, up there with adultery and thieving and other things like that, murder, slavery is listed right there along with those other unrighteous acts. And you know, tying it into our Wednesday night discussions in Revelation... Slavery, and specifically the buying and selling of of slaves, is listed among the evils of the city of Babylon in Revelation chapter 1. So over and over again, the scripture makes it clear that slavery is evil, 
Human beings are divinely created in God's image. They need to be valued and treated properly and not as, or not as property without rights. So, what the Bible is trying to tell us and was trying to tell the people that it was originally presented to back in the day is that even if the law, the world, says you are a slave, that status is not going to alienate you from salvation in Christ. And that's what Scripture's primary interest and concern is for us. It wants to us to understand whatever status you're in, you can come to Christ. And some people will look at these passages and, and again, try to twist them and take them in isolation as condoning slavery. But the focus here is you need to understand whatever condition you're in, you can still come to God. Whatever mankind tries to tell you, whenever human beings try to tell you you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're, you're not acceptable, you can still come to God. God does not view you that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And he goes on. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. In other words, this is not going to keep you from a relationship with God. Being legally a slave does not keep you from being a child of God under God's concern. But if you can gain your freedom, do so. Because to God, you shouldn't live under servitude, even if the law says it's okay. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when he was called is Christ's slave. So we have this own humility and subjugation to the Lord in terms of our service. And he wants us to understand that. Brothers and sisters, each person as a responsible person to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them. And yet, as he says, if you are a slave and you can get free, you need to do that. Because that's not something that God intended to have happen or wants to have happen. Ephesians chapter 6, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart. And again, people take this passage in isolation and they want to say, oh look, it's the saying slaves have to obey their masters. But then they don't read the rest of it. Just as you would obey Christ. The reason they're told to obey their masters is because they're doing so in, you know, to demonstrate the submission that Christ himself demonstrated when he came and sacrificed himself on the cross. And they serve their masters as they would serve the Lord. Do everything for the glory of God. We're familiar with that passage. And here what he's saying. Whatever it is you do, do it for the glory of God. If it's working for a master, then do it. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Again, it doesn't matter whether you're slave or free in terms of God's spirit and that availability to you. You can still partake of that blessing. But the flip side on this is he has instructions for the masters as well. It's not just about the slaves. It's also about the masters. And you know the same thing comes up when people talk about the roles of men and women, you know, husbands and wives. I'm not going to get into that because it's a totally different topic. But it's the same kind of parallel. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In other words, with respect with the love of the Lord and understanding that they are valuable human beings. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is something that, again, that is, is hard for people to struggle with and 
people who either haven't really looked at it or are intentionally animosity, have animosity towards Christianity will take these kinds of passages and they're going to try to twist it or take them out of context or not really look at them. Uh, but if you do the proper study, I think it's pretty clear that God does not condone slavery. So how are we supposed to respond to this as Christians? Well, as Christians, I think it's pretty clear what the Bible calls us to do as well. We cannot tolerate any kind of injustice, and that includes slavery. Slavery is not gone from the world. There's still slavery in the world today. Human trafficking is what it's most commonly referred to as. And we can't allow that to go on. That's an injustice. It's contrary to God's values. God intends us to be recognizing each other as valuable, divinely created human beings. um, And we need to recognize that. But more specifically, or more generally, the Bible talks about doing justice and mercy and, and these values that we need to live. Isaiah 117, learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Defend the oppressed. If that's not fighting against slavery, by definition, I don't know what else would be. And this was a big part of why a lot of the abolitionist movement was started and advanced by Christians specifically. They said, hey, you know, we recognize what the Bible says about this. We need to be defending the oppressed. And slaves are oppressed. We need to get them out of that situation. Uh, Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And this is the verse that we're probably familiar with. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We need to all recognize that whatever our circumstance is, we should be humble before the Lord. God is our master. God is the one that we have given ourselves to. He's our creator, our sustainer. We owe him everything. And we need to approach all of our interactions with other human beings with the same humility that we have uh, as to our example with the Lord. And then, again, like we said before, love your neighbor as yourself. This is one of those touchstone passages or verses that pops up over and over again. It starts in the Old Testament. God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You remember that passage? But then right after that, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Your obligations spiritually do not end with God. They also extend to the people around you and the other human beings that you share this world with. And Jesus specifically addressed this in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. He says, when, they're at, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, okay, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which the Pharisees, the Hebrews, were, were, or the Israelites were, were used to thinking of that. They understood that one. But then he said, don't stop there. Because the right after that, the second greatest command is love your neighbor as yourself. And then he taught at length about what that means to love your neighbor as yourself and how you do that. Uh, Romans chapter 13, Paul addresses the same issue and he follows the same teaching. He says, look, all of these things that you're told not to do, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, all of these other laws that you're given with relation to your fellow human beings can be summed up and are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And he tells the same thing to the Galatians in chapter 5. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary of all of God's laws. And this is part of where I think people get confused with the Bible sometimes. They will look at it and they want the Bible to specifically address every little thing that they can imagine. Well, this is limited length. (laughs) 
You know, human beings, unfortunately, are incredibly disturbingly creative when it comes to figuring out ways to go against God's will. You know, if the Bible tried to sit down and address every single way that human beings could think of to go against God's will and say, don't do this, we would not have room for the volumes that it would take. I mean, the laws that we have in our law books in human terms are huge, and they don't even address every possible situation. So the Bible lays out these general principles, and trust in us to review it and to understand it in its full context and in its entirety, and take these general values and apply them in specific. And it comes down to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't do that if you're treating your neighbor as property or treating your neighbor as somehow less than human in any kind of way. Now, there's bad news from this, and that's that although the Bible doesn't like slavery, and the Bible clearly condemns it and says this is not acceptable, all of us are slaves. If you have not given your life to God, if you've not put on Christ in baptism, you are a slave to sin. The scripture makes this pretty clear too. John chapter 8, Jesus tells them, he says, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, well, wait a minute, we're not slaves. We're Abraham's descendants. Which, again, they probably forget they were slaves. That was a big part of the Israelite history. But God had set them free. And they thought, okay, well, we're set free. You know, Moses took us out of Egypt a long time ago. We aren't, we aren't slaves. He says, yes, you are, because anyone who, is a, who sins is still a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, Jesus, has that authority, sets you free, if you're set free through the son, you will be free indeed. And Paul says the same thing in chapter 6 of Romans. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer someone to be, yourself to someone to be obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves of sin, which leads to death, or whether you are to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks to God that through, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. And I want to take this particular verse and I want to frame that on my wall. I want to use it on my letterhead. I want that to be my sign-off message because I think we always need to be aware when we're reading the Bible that they are using examples from everyday life because of our human limitations. God's trying to speak to us in terms that we can relate to and that we can understand, uh, and he tries to do that. But anyway, so Paul goes on, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. So that's the bad news, yeah. If you have not given yourself to God, by default, you are a slave to sin. And that slavery to sin is only going to lead to one conclusion, and that's death. But good news is, we have a better option. We have the option to get out of that slavery. We can be set free from our slavery to sin. And through Christ's sacrifice, we have been bought and redeemed and set free from that, from that slavery. But the even better news than that, and here's what's really exciting, even though he was talking in the previous passages about being slaves of righteousness, we're not really slaves of righteousness. Because when we put on Christ voluntarily, 
we are choosing that. We're not being forced upon us. Just like kind of the model that was established under the old law, actually. And that's why it's important to understand that context. But he says, when you put this on, you're not becoming just another slave again. You haven't just changed slavery status, but you are actually given the opportunity to become a child of God. It's not just being another slave to a different master. You are adopted into the household of God, and you become a part of his family. And just like Jesus said before, a slave has no part in the family, but the son does. And so when you put on the Lord in baptism, when you are set free from your slavery to sin, you become a part of God's family. You become a child of God that can never be disassociated from that. You can't be gotten rid of or transferred away like a slave or somebody else like that could. And he wants us to understand that. But verse 21 of Romans 6, What benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Slavery to sin is only going to result in one thing. It's death. Now, I'll tell you this. You know, some people think about it and they're like, Oh, you know what? Living without the Lord, that's not so hard. What, is, what does sin really ask for you? It doesn't demand you do anything. You can do whatever you want to under sin. Yeah, because you're going to eventually die. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to go ahead and, you know, do what you think you want to do, knowing that it's going to eventually result in your eternal death? I would say no. But for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has offered us this gift, and it is up to us to accept it. Romans chapter 8, and specifically verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption into sonship. We're told in the scripture elsewhere, no one can serve two masters. So the choice is presented to each of us. What are you going to be? Are you going to be a slave to sin? Are you going to be a son of God? And the choice is presented to everybody. If you are in a position where you haven't made that choice yet, and you're still a slave to sin, you have the opportunity to be freed from that today. You have the opportunity to come now and put on the Lord in baptism and become a son, become an adopted child of God that can never be estranged from him, can never be left from that family. If you have that need or if you've been struggling with sin and it's still fighting against you and that's something that we can pray for you, we want to do that as well. If there's anything that we can help you with uh, as we end our service time today, we would invite you to come forward as we stand and sing. Jesus calleth and